All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Monopoly Attack. I am Frieza Bastoon, a recent doctor from the University of Leuven. And I'm Kay Jabelli, a competition lawyer based in Brussels. All right. And so today we'll be giving you the bird's eye view of all the possible tech cases, past, present, and future, that are at least somewhat in the public domain. Uh, and in, in researching this, we found a lot of them. So we probably have to dive right in. We'll divide them by the company they focus on. And even within that company, we'll divide them by the sort of the conduct that they focus on. We've got Microsoft, the old tech company, Apple, of course, Amazon, Facebook, and then Google. Are you ready for this, Kay? Yeah, and so this was kind of initiated by these couple of new cases that were opened this last week or so by the uh, German Competition Authority under their new amended competition law, Section 19A. And so we thought, okay, well, three more cases. Uh, what, you know, what does that look like if you look at it from the big picture? So in particular, we want to think about the evolving scope of competition enforcement as it touches increasingly on digitally enabled markets. Traditional industrial era antitrust has been about how products get to market. Illegal exclusionary conduct has taken the form of exclusivity agreements, other kinds of supply chain restrictions, predatory pricing, and the like. What's increasingly different about technology cases is that they get at the very heart of product designs and business models. Rather than looking at your contracts with customers or suppliers, they're about the layers of your technology stack. What parts are open to rivals or complementers? And how? It's a somewhat fuzzy distinction between decisions internal to your firm and decisions that are primarily external. The question of competition law, as it evolves, is how much it will come to dictate internal product decisions. We thought to start off with Microsoft, one of the older cases, the original gatekeeper, so to say. And we're focused really on uh, European cases, so trying to avoid looking beyond Europe. And still, there was a lot to look at. So Microsoft case, there was, of course, a U.S. case as well. But in 2004, uh, there was an EC decision. Uh, European Commission, uh, DGCOMP, found that Microsoft had abused its dominant position in the PC operating system market. And two particular ways that they had done this, they had uh, refused to supply competitors in the workgroup server operating system market, interface information. So some interoperability information that they had been providing, but then they stopped providing. And this made uh, those products less competitive. And so uh, they ordered Microsoft to provide that interoperability information. So what do you think, Frizo, on this one? Is this sort of internal uh, product decision-making uh, internal to the firm, or is this more how you deal with your suppliers and your customers and your competitors. Yeah, that's a bit of a tough one because, I mean, at the time, Microsoft was, of course, demonopolist. We're talking about a 90-plus uh, percentage market share in these uh, PC operating systems. And so a lot of, not PC operating system providers, but software, mostly workplace software, were really relying on Microsoft for the, the ins and out of Windows for their software to interoperate with that of Microsoft. So, yeah, its decision to then withhold that information, I would say, did have a large impact on those more independent developers. Although they were not just like small app developers. These were gigantic firms as well, like Sun Microsystems was the main complainant in that case. So I would say external. 
I think as well it's external, but for me the difference really hinges on the fact that they were providing this interoperability information mm. in the past, and then they sort of withdrew it. So there's kind of a argument of promissory estoppel in U.S. common law that would say, you know, if you've enabled these network effects by having this interoperability information, and then you withdraw it without a justification, without without a real good reason for it, then it's Maybe the reason was you're trying to foreclose your competitors. There was another yeah. aspect to the case as well, though. They were also accused of uh, harming competition through tying. So rather than refusal to supply, there was a tying claim that they were tying Windows Media Player with the PC operating system. So Windows Media Player would come installed. I remember back then there was like Real Player and a couple of other audio playing applications. And it's funny these days to think about that. Like, can you imagine a PC not coming with an audio player? Like you would open it and then you would need to download something to play a MP3. It's just different so, times. so different times. But back then, uh, the inclusion of Windows Media Player in the PC operating system was found to be anti-competitive by the European Commission. And they ordered that Microsoft release a version of Windows that did not include Windows Media Player. This is actually famous in law schools as the version of Windows that only law professors and competition law professors <laughs> specifically would ever buy. It's like they sold a few hundred copies of it. That's right. Not a great example of a, of a successful case there, especially, as you mentioned, the, the remedy that no one really well, got better from, neither competing media players, I think, neither the consumer. So, But there was a more promising case a bit later, at least in my opinion, which was Virtually the same case, Windows operating system, but this time the tie was not between the OS and this media player, but between the OS and a browser. And I don't think those cases are different. Like a browser is a more important piece of software. There's a lot more potential for innovation as well. I mean, the whole theory there was that this browser could in the long term replace uh, Windows OS. And so Microsoft was shutting out those competing browsers because it feared uh, disruption from that angle. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to getting into it in more detail because the type of tying that was engaged in in this was a little bit different. And of course, Microsoft was arguing that Internet Explorer was a fundamental component of the Windows OS. And then they had given Internet Explorer some preferential access, uh, I believe. So we'll need to dive into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I think that becomes a little bit tricky, actually. You know, on the Windows Media Player one, I would say that's kind of like quite producty. But I think some of the conduct on the Internet Explorer one was a bit more exclusionary. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you on that. But uh, we have to move on. Like Those were the old cases. This is all before 2010. I didn't even know about competition law back in that, <laughs> back in that time. But um, more recently, after like laying dormant for quite a while, Microsoft has come back with a vengeance, right? At least if you have to believe the antitrust complainants. They have not learned their lessons, apparently. I mean, it depends on what kind of lessons you're talking about. In 2017, quite more recently, there was another complaint, uh, similar behavior in Russia. A cybersecurity company, Kaspersky, argued that Microsoft was abusing its dominant position in operating systems by bundling its own PC security suite with the operating system. So similar tying and bundling uh, issues. How much do consumers expect to have a PC security antivirus stuff on their devices. And I think there were some concerns that it wasn't just the tying aspect, but there was also some sort of technical foreclosure, some features that Kaspersky wasn't given access to. 
some integrations with the operating system that Microsoft gave its own antivirus solutions that it didn't give to third parties. But when it comes to the security of a device or an operating system, I tend to think that's you know, a little bit easier uh, to, to understand as a justification for not wanting to fully open up your system. And obviously, Microsoft has a long uh, history and reputation of uh, cybersecurity uh, issues and viruses and, and being a target of malware. Uh, the SolarWinds hack recently, which was uh, also due to vulnerabilities in Microsoft software, they might have been benefiting from a more closed system. But the Russian competition authority said they had to, to open it up more for the Russian cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean I think there's a reason that EU competition authorities were were less keen to accept that because obviously I mean there's some geopolitics at play at least. Um, Russian firms wanting guaranteed access to this operating system that basically every workplace in the world uh, runs on. Um, yeah, <laughs> some might question that. And, uh, that, you know, that, that definitely wasn't the end of the complaints. Uh, there's even more recent ones. So there's a company called Slack. They provide uh, productivity software. Uh, they came at the sort of market very differently than Microsoft's ostensibly, you know, very high market share, arguably dominant Microsoft Office suite. Uh, they said, well, that's nice, uh, but it was built for a time when people were working really uh, on their own PCs. Uh, and what we really want to do is, uh, is have a more collaborative solution, uh, really from the bottom up, based on this collaboration and having common workspaces. Now, Microsoft had workspaces, uh, a variety of products that they used for collaboration, collaborative work. I remember when I was at the commission, we used one. So you could have lots of people working in the same document at the, at the same time. But Slack came in with really sort of mobile first, internet first, collaborative first. And their concerns were that Microsoft had, as in the past, tied their evolving enterprise collaboration software teams into their office productivity suite and tied it to force it to be installed with, with anyone who wanted the office productivity suite and uh, some various other integrations and functionalities that they made available to their bundled products that weren't available to Slack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way I got it, like Slack is the cool workplace software, right? Everyone in Silicon Valley uses Slack while everyone in, in government uses Teams or whatever other Microsoft product uh, they have a license to in their institutional uh, package. Yeah, but it's hard to compete with the Office suite when it comes pre-installed, of course. Uh, we'll see more pre-installation concerns later. Uh, so yeah. what do you think about this one? I mean, I got to add that I don't want to be paying 100 bucks a year for a subscription to Office. So obviously, I would be happy to use cheaper alternatives. And that there is this competition coming into the market that is arguably being foreclosed and that Microsoft does have these legacy products with a very big installed base that it would be motivated to defend. I don't know. I, I think we'll need to look at a little bit uh, more closely at the facts next time. Yeah, and we will do that. But um, are we done with Microsoft then? Is there anything else? Like These cases just keep coming. Well, there is one more. If you look, Microsoft is in this GAFAM group. They have been mentioned explicitly under the Digital Markets Act support study where they have sort of surveyed big tech companies and 
looked at competitors' complaints and and uh, business users' complaints, and there is uh, another one, uh, one around cloud concerns. So uh, Microsoft is a big player in the cloud market with Azure, and a couple of interesting references to Microsoft's cloud being used in some kind of a leveraging or some kind of interoperability or bundling with Office, preventing data transfers between applications and generally making it difficult for cloud customers uh, to do whatever they want to do. And again, mm-hmm. very limited facts in the impact assessment. And it is relatively recent. There isn't a big complaint. Uh, it's not like, you know, even with the Slack one, there's more clarity because there's been some publication of the complaining issues, but still way before getting to a investigation or a decision for us to really be able to, for me at least, to have an opinion on where that mm-hmm. falls on the line. Whew, that was already uh, quite some, but we have a lot more to go. Should we move on to Apple then? Let's do it. So, so Apple okay. has always been good, right, for a very long time, <laughs> and it's only recently that they they've gotten in trouble with the antitrust, right? It is true. Like they flew under the radar for a long time. So there were some very small cases around 2010, including iTunes and limitation uh, that they put on programming languages used for the App Store. But that was all really small and sort of informally resolved. But then. It was a big one, uh, but it was a cartel case, not really abuse of dominance. So we should maybe cover this more shortly, where Apple, well, was engaged in a cartel with the large publishers. And the way that worked is that at the time, Amazon was the only game in town for ebooks. Uh, those publishers were not very happy with that situation because, of course, Amazon bargains, um, well, it's in a tough bargaining position. So they were happy when Apple enter that market and Apple was willing to go with a different business model than Amazon. Well, Amazon just bought those ebooks from publishers, resold them, sometimes for an even lower price, at least when it came to bestsellers. Uh, On Apple's store, they would have sort of the App Store regimen where they could set the prices and Apple would just take a 30% cut from the sale of those books. But it turned out that, uh, for example, through these most favored nation clauses, um, there was some collusive aspect to it because, in some sense, this was a ploy to force Amazon to increase its uh, prices or at least for those publishers to be able to increase their prices towards Amazon. You know way more about this case than I imagined, Frizo. Um, so, <laughs> so, so what about that? Uh, meeting competition defense. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do have some sympathy for this case because it's, uh, yeah, Apple was a new game in town at that point. They wanted to come up with a new model because obviously you can't compete with the with the dominant player if you just replicate your model. I mean, publishers, I think, had uh, intentions that were a bit less pure. So, hmm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in the middle on this one. Um, what about you? Well, they offered commitments to address the commission's concerns. So, yeah. as well, the publishers did. Seems more traditional kind of uh, 101 issue, hub and spoke, potentially. Yeah. Maybe you know, a little bit business model, a little bit meeting competition, but I think it's a little bit of less of an internal firm decision and more of a sort of dealing with external uh, economic conduct. So, I would put yeah. it slightly more in the latter bucket. But that wasn't the end. That's they, fair. They, Sorry, that was the end of the Apple cases. That wasn't the end, cases. right? Of the Apple cases, is it? There's a <laughs> there's a couple more. I oh think. my god, no, no. There's <laughs> one one type of case that has that is has gone global, and that we've talked about before. Of course, those App Store cases. 
Like honestly, there's there's barely a competition authority out there. I think that's currently not looking at the App Store. Um, we've got the Commission that has three or four open cases. Uh, we've got various national authorities as well um, in France, in the Netherlands, and again in Russia, in the UK as well. And I guess just to take them all together, um, there's there's three perhaps big concerns. The, the concern that's all out in the press is this 30% commission fee that they also charge on ebooks, but that originated with the App Store. But I guess the question is more how do they maintain that 30% fee on every app purchase, subscription, or in app purchase? So, one idea is that they're tying their, their app distribution, their App Store, where they are dominant, certainly if you define the market as app stores for iOS, because then they have a, a monopoly in that market uh, if each ecosystem is their own market. So they're tying their app distribution in that market to this in-app purchase function, this payment processor, essentially. But there's more. They, they reinforce that by prohibiting app developers from steering their users to any other purchase channels. Because, I mean, let's think of Spotify, which is one of the big complainants. Um, you can subscribe to them via the web, just go to their website and Apple won't get this 30% cut and Spotify will certainly be happier, but Spotify can't tell you that in the app, this is so-called anti-steering provision. And then thirdly, at least the commission seems to be looking at this broader charge of disintermediation. Like Apple sort of believes that the apps in the app store are it, to some extent, its own. And when consumers buy them or subscribe, Apple gets their information, their data, etc. But uh, that does not get passed through, or at least not fully, to the actual developers. So they can't uh, simply get the email addresses and perhaps use those to circumvent the fees as well. So um, was that a fair short summary, Ken? On the App Store, yeah. I, I think that last one is kind of interesting, and we'll come back to that, this idea that the platform may be obtaining valuable data about the activities of its business users and that may be using that in a way that could be anti-competitive. I think that's one of the common themes that we see, this idea of disintermediation and whether that's a, a theory of harm that is cognizable under competition law. But is it more internal or external? What do you think? So yeah, as you know, and I've written a lot about this, I'm not a big fan on how of how Apple maintains the app ecosystem. And of course, it gets credit for, for bringing it into life. Like we probably wouldn't have the same flourishing app ecosystem without Apple and its innovation that is the App Store. But I think at this point, the restrictions go too far and restrict those, those third parties, those developers, um, to such an extent that they could rightly be found anti-competitive. To the extent that the issue is like, okay, we don't like that they're charging 30%. Um, is a slightly different question than the tying question. And I think, you know, the 30% could be achieved through other means than the tying, which could be legal. And then the interesting part is that the complaints are in the statement of objections, uh, which came out a couple weeks ago as well, are about the tying itself, which seems like it could potentially end up like the Microsoft Windows Media Player thing, where you say, okay, we don't want you to do this, but the end result isn't actually causing a fix, you know, the outcome that the commission is expecting it to. That's definitely true. I think the remedy question there is difficult. And yeah, depending on how it's phrased, Apple can simply go around it and change its business model a bit. 
but keep everything more or less the same. So we'll have to see what the commission does. It also ties together with the theory of harm. Certainly if they focus on tying, that becomes more difficult, but maybe they'll focus on something else like margin squeeze or something. And then that changes the situation. There was one other aspect though, because there have been a lot of complaints from not just uh, Epic and Spotify, but also from uh, some parental control apps like uh, Custodio and KidsLocks have said there's a little bit of also self-preferencing or discrimination in the App Store in maybe what the priority that Apple gives to in search results or other aspects of the prominence of the display in the App Store that it might be preferencing its own apps and discriminating uh, against third-party apps in the App Store. So so kind of the friend non-discrimination obligation that you see in essential facilities cases coming up. Very true. And and yeah, they have some ground for their case because they were kicked out of the App Store when Apple uh, put its own parental control app in the App Store. So that was a rocky start to that uh, dispute. What so, about National? Oh, boy. Um, they're mostly looking at similar practices, though, um, but from different perspectives. Like in France, it's the commercial court case brought by the Ministry of the Economy, uh, brought against Apple as well as Google's uh, App Store for more of an an exploitation kind of case. Uh, So the idea is that these app stores exploit their developers by imposing unfair terms, levying excessive prices or or commission fees. But yeah, that's very characteristic of the French system where where that's a more easily proven uh, theory of harm than, for example, at the EU level. Uh, We won't see a similar case there. But there are similar cases to the EU one in the Netherlands. Indeed, perhaps so similar even that the question is whether there won't be a conflict if they both get resolved. And the UK one of the Competition and Markets Authority is, is at a very early stage. It was only announced in March, so it remains to be seen uh, what that one focuses on exactly. And briefly, isn't there some rule of uh, one-stop investigation or how does this conflict allow to happen in the EU? Can you have the investigations under the same conduct in two different jurisdictions? I mean, maybe we should go deeper on that on the Apple episode, but no, in in theory, the the commission gets priority if it looks at the same conduct. So, tough question. Tough question. Mm -hmm. And there's also a Russian investigation also into the same app store and potentially the same practice. And I'm looking forward to hearing, going into a little bit more detail and hearing about how there are uh, similarities and differences in the the unique aspects of the national cases, especially like you were talking about the French one. I'm curious. But Mm. that's not the end of the story, is it, Frizo? Oh, no, but I feel bad. I'm already uh, taking too much time with all these Apple cases. We have so much uh, other firms to go, but I'll I'll be a bit shorter on the other ones. Uh, Apple Pay is another case. It concerns the way that Apple guards its so-called near-field communication chip, you know, the the chip that gets used when you use your phone to tap a payment terminal and make a payment, or when you tap your phone to uh, enter an airport, uh, you know, to scan your tickets, that kind of stuff. Works with near-field communication, and Apple is not given access to that chip to other developers that, for example, want to make their own wallet app or their own payment app. Um, they all have to work with these QR codes rather than the simple tap-and-go feature that um, Apple reserved to itself. So that's, again, a bit of that self-preferencing idea. Why can only Apple use this chip, even though it's competing with other payment services, for example? On that one, I, I tend to think that if you have developed an infrastructure or a technology, an innovation like the NFC chip, the particular secure token element that they have, you should be able to reserve that for yourself because that's, that's mm. the whole 
um, reward for that investment. So that one, I'm a little bit curious to see how, how the enforcers will resolve that question. Yeah, and I tend to agree with you. Like, they have never given access to this NFC chip, so the idea is not that they were first open and then closed it off when it was opportune for them. Uh, they so far built it only for their own use. So, I mean, at least if there is a case, it would have to be under the very strict refusal to supply standards, I'd say. And or, that's uh, also being looked at uh, potentially in the Netherlands as well? Yeah, once more. I mean, they have more than one conflict to resolve, the uh, ACM uh, that they have in the Netherlands and the European Commission. Well, they did have a really nice, extensive market study into app stores recently, right? True, true. That was already 2018. That really sort of drove the conversation. I mean, or at least got the conversation going. So I think they should get dibs to some extent <laughs> on these app store cases. They've um, definitely done a lot of homework on it. But and is that all the the theories of harm then? Well, that's it for Apple Pay, but then we get further and there's these privacy changes and we've we've dedicated a Clubhouse episode that some of some of the people in the audience might have heard how they uh, how they've implemented this app tracking transparency um, some of you might have updated to iOS uh, what is it 14 and now when, when apps want to track you uh, across your phone, they have to get your consent. And uh, it's through a pop-up that Apple has designed. And <laughs> what we're seeing is that a lot of people don't like apps tracking them. Uh, so they decline. Only like about 5% of those developers get this consent to track the users. But the problem that some see here is, again, a bit of self-preferencing because Apple's own apps do not require the same kind of consent. So Apple remains free to track you to some extent, but independent apps do not. And that some competition authorities are starting to look at that, but um, mainly the French one has added a first decision on that, uh, sort of the interim really quick look analysis, but they didn't really find a fault so far, but they said they didn't fully look at the self-preferencing aspect there. So that's it, right? That's got to be it. We're going to stop here. There's another distribution case where they were really tough on wholesalers, um, imposed all these conditions, 1 billion euro fine in France. But we don't have time, Kay. I want to I wanna listen to you get into Google because, I mean, that one, at least on the European level, was sort of the first big tech company since Microsoft that got into a fight with the commission, right? Well, OK, so there, there's been complaints from a number of different vertical search providers, so-called vertical search providers, that offer um, sort of a niche of what uh, Google does. So uh, Yelp does uh, searching for restaurants. Um, there's a bunch of what are called comparison shopping services, uh, which are platforms for advertising different kinds of products. So Google had a competitor to that. They've had, they have maps, which competed with a lot of other map providers. And over time, Google was incorporating some of these improvements that they came up with and some improvements that they saw from others into their search result page. So instead of the 10 blue links, you would get a box at the top with maybe a, a map graphic or a, a shopping carousel or a search of flight results that come in a certain way. There's complaints about jobs, job results. So a number of these um, Weather was one of them. The weather case uh, from uh, 2013 did not go forward. They found that this was innovation and improving the search results. In 2016, in the UK, private litigation over maps 
Also, they found that the conduct was not anti-competitive. It was justified. The FTCs as well, I mean, it's outside of Europe, but they had also looked at it. So these decisions finding that the conduct was justified came one after another until the commission's uh, shopping decision. And that was complained about because it went very long. There were some procedural back and forth at one point. It was thought that the commitments that Google had given would be accepted and that there wouldn't be prohibition decision and a fine. Then there was a change of leadership and a fine and a prohibition decision, a many, many billion dollar fine. Um, we'll go into this further, but now that, so that is a finished case, at least with regards to shopping, though there are now still ongoing investigations into uh, jobs and local and probably others as well. I wouldn't be surprised. But the shopping case is on appeal. So that has been heard by the court and awaiting judgment at first level. That'll be exciting to see that one handed down. So, yeah, where do you have to situate those cases? I mean, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, that's great. Google improves its search results by serving some of them directly. For example, if I type in weather, like it's it's quite useful for me to immediately get the weather where I am here in Leuven rather than having to click a blue link to see what the weather is here. On the other hand, yeah, it's also a bit of an, an, of an infringement to do in a way with the open web to some extent. But I guess the question is, when is that an efficiency? When does it harm those competitors? And for, for me, that sort of depends on how commoditized this information is that they're serving you immediately. Like with weather, I don't care. But if perhaps with comparison shopping services, I might have a, a preference and not want the, the Google one put in my face immediately. Where, where are you on this, Kay? I think there's a meeting competition defense here as well. Google's most profitable searches are product searches. And, and more and more of those are being done first by Amazon. So people can go to any website. They just type in the URL and you go to the website. So whether you know competitors are being foreclosed or if Google is trying to improve its products, I kind of side with the German court, the British court, and the FTC on that one, that it's, it's more of a trying to improve your product rather than trying to harm comparison shopping, sort of. You know, part of the issue there was the, these comparison shopping sites were being downgraded in the search results. And mm-hmm. frankly, I think that's, that was probably partially justified giving the the data was showing that users were going to those sites and going back to Google search because they weren't getting what they wanted. So if, if that's that behavior, user behavior that you're observing, it's logical that you would downgrade those sites and not show them as highly. And so I think that was probably justified. But that wasn't it. No, there was a couple of other cases as well. In 2018, there was an Android case that found that there was a problematic tying, uh, anti-competitive foreclosure for the app store and the the browser and the search app that were all pre-installed on uh, Android operating system devices uh, that were given to OEMs and that this was, you know, in some ways similar to the Microsoft uh, Windows tying concerns that this was foreclosing competitors. I think the times have changed a little bit. I think, you know, installing an app on a phone is a lot easier than it was back in when you had dial-up modems and you had to find a website to download something. You weren't sure if it was legit or not, whereas now all of that distribution is much more controlled 
and there's more trust uh, and reliability in that system. So I think it is a little bit different than those previous cases, but the commission's theory of harm was very similar and, and showing mm-hmm. that relying on a lot of the same kind of principles and, and case law. Right. And, and it's not only the commission that looked at this, right? Uh, there was a precedent already from, well, is Russia part of, not EU, of course, but perhaps still part of Europe. So already three years before that, they found that Google had abused its dominance by indeed tying these uh, their, their app store, their must-have app store with other products like Search and Chrome, etc. So that was surprisingly a, uh, a real convergence there from the European Commission and the Federal Anti-Monopoly Service in Russia. And of course, Russia has a very strong Russian language search provider as well, uh, which was involved also in the EU case. You know, when when Russia did their decision earlier on, some said this is a bit of a a sort of industrial policy kind of thing, uh, wanting to protect Mm -hmm. your local champion and make sure that they don't get crowded out um, by by any anti-competitive practices or, or just because you don't want them to get crowded out. And that case is also on appeal. The, the EU one, at least, uh, the, the Russian one, I, I'm not sure the exact status of, but the hearing for the Android case uh, has not happened. That is not the, the last one, far from. There was also the AdSense, which also led to a fine and involved some uh, practices that were sort of locking advertisers or making it harder for advertisers to switch to other uh, providers of digital advertising. I'm not fully read in on that, but uh, I think the decision was published not too long ago, but that's, yeah. so I'll have to do my homework for, for when we get to that in a couple of weeks. Not all though, <clears throat> those are all just the closed cases. So there, mm-hmm. there's also several ongoing cases or rather new investigations. Um, if, we, if we look at the, the EU level, if we start there, we've got investigations into the way Google is using data in their products. So this is reported from back in November of 2020. We'll see, I mean, this could be similar to the obtaining value from data from the activities of, of your business users and, and this whole question of who gets the value of that data. Uh, which is a very live concern, especially here in Europe. Then there's a couple of uh, national cases around this as well. So we we mentioned at the top that uh, Bundeskartellamt uh, has opened a 19A case around data processing as well. Um, there was uh, also French and Italian cases around the or maybe related to the uh, AdSense uh, issue of, of what they're doing to advertisers and difficulty that maybe the advertisers were having in dealing with uh, Google. They also had a similar, well, you could say issue as, as Apple in yeah protecting the privacy of their users, specifically of their browser. Um, they've implemented a sort of similar system where there's more privacy, or at least that's the goal of their their so-called privacy sandbox, but of course, independent um, websites that rely on tracking, um, tracking of users using, for example, Google Chrome. They said that that was anti-competitive. Now they would get even less 
data, um, Google would get equally much. So they would have to rely on Google more and more. Uh, so they, they're getting in trouble uh, for that in the UK where the CMA has opened an investigation into that. One thing of interest on that is I don't think they've actually implemented any of these, right? This is all just future plans that they've True. announced and are engaging in dialogue with the community because this is going to affect advertisers. This is going to affect people in the ad tech chain. This is going to affect uh, publishers and, and pe- people who have ad inventory to sell. They've been trying to be very public about it, but the competition authorities, even before it's been implemented, have, have taken an interest. And I, I think that's at the UK level is leading on that, but I think the EU has also mentioned concerns around that. I think that's most of the main ones. We might be missing something, but in the interest of time, should we move on to the next big tech company? Right, let's do it. Uh, so we still got Amazon, of course, on a lot of people's minds, especially since the uh, provocative uh, piece of academic work by Lena Khan in 2017, Amazon's antitrust paradox, arguing that at least under U.S. antitrust law, uh, it's very difficult to to deal with the anti-competitive practice of Amazon. In Europe, uh, there's clearly been less of a problem because there have been quite some cases. Uh, maybe to start with... Um, These most favorite nation clauses, uh, you'll remember them from Apple, they got into trouble for agreeing on those with publishers and sort of having a hub and spoke situation. Now, Amazon on its uh, e-commerce platform also used those clauses saying that sellers have to offer their best price on Amazon Marketplace and not, for example, on a competing platform. Germany had a case on that. Amazon said they would stop, uh, well, they would abandon those clauses. A little bit later, um, there was an EU case on that, also ended in a, a commitment decision where, where Amazon said it would stop using those clauses, this time for ebooks uh, specifically. Uh, so that's the first group of cases. Then there's again the, these exploitation cases, the idea that Amazon has this market power is certainly relative to the, the sellers on its platform, and it uses that to impose these unfair terms and conditions. So again, those are all at the national level because we don't really have a strong EU provision on that, but there are strong national laws, especially in Germany on the one hand and France on the other, as I've mentioned before. And that Are those some- ones... Ongoing? Uh, no, they've been concluded again with um, commitments by Amazon. So you can see that Amazon is maybe taking a bit of a uh, not really hostile approach. They said they would adapt those exploitive clauses, uh, for example, that allowed them to change the contract at any time, kick sellers off the platform for this or that perceived uh, infringement. And interestingly, they said they would adapt those clauses globally. So, I mean, the the Bundeskartellamt, the German Competition Authority, in concert with the Austrian Competition Authority, got Amazon to implement global remedies. That's quite something. And that seems to be similar to this recent uh, DC Attorney General complaint, to some extent, no? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, certainly in that case, DC or the US seems to be following Europe's lead. There was another similar case in France about this, but uh, they're all about the same kind of potentially exploitive conduct. So to then move on to another group of cases, uh, there's there's a real diversity here. Again, the word you've, you've heard a lot today, self-preferencing. Um, the EU is looking at that because it's not exploitative, but rather exclusionary. Looking at the use of data again, how Amazon uses that data to outcompete the sellers on its platform. 
also second investigation into potential self-referencing when it comes to its additional services. So, you know, if you're a seller on Amazon, you want to be in this buy box, people can just click on it and buy your product. If you're not in a buy box, your, your product is a lot less likely to get bought. But Amazon seems to only give this privilege, well, either to itself or at least to those independent sellers that use its fulfilled by Amazon, its logistics uh, shipping service, essentially. So that's a potential tie, I'm thinking, but uh, the commission is, is vague on the specifics there. Similar uh, case also in Italy. So Running in parallel. Yeah, again, again, a potential conflict. <laughs> you only realize that when you line them all up next to, to each other, that there's a lot of overlap, and it'll be interesting to see how or whether that gets resolved. Yeah, I think, I think usually they would try to stay a decision, right, so that they avoid having these conflicting remedy results and, and so that you know, the different authorities don't end up coming out to different conclusions on, on what the company needs to do differently. On these ones, you know, I, I think the previous cases, MFNs and, and unfair terms and conditions, quite clearly sort of out-of-the-firm stuff when we talk about how they design their buy box, uh, how how they use data, that's a little bit more inside the firm. Obviously, when you have competitively sensitive information and you use that, that can be a, a clear violation of, of antitrust law. But I think the bulk of the commission's statement of objections, which did come out last November, isn't about competitively sensitive information, but the use of aggregated data, which... Now, so we've seen that as a concern in the, with Google as well, with Apple as well, whether a platform, how, how a platform can use the data that's generated through business users' use of that platform. I think that's a very live, live question. Certainly. Yeah, are we the end? No, we are not. There's, uh, there's one more case, or actually three more. Uh, the one we've mentioned at the very start, the new German case, based not on traditional competition law, but this new provision that is only targeted at these platforms that are of paramount significance across markets. And in announcing that new decision that is vague on specifics, they also, a rather investigation, not decision, they've also made public that there's two other ongoing investigations, one into whether Amazon is influencing the pricing of sellers on its marketplace. So this Makes me think of up and spoke again. Um, is it in line with those earlier Apple and Amazon cases? I'm not entirely sure. Do you know more about that? No, not yet. I will need to look into that for when we look specifically at Amazon. But that'll be, you know, how are those different than the buy box concerns? How are those different than the other data data concerns? Is it related to COVID? You know, did they put price caps on on how high the prices could go on certain items? I think I heard something around that as well. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, the third one was about how some some specific sellers get sort of privileged status on the on the Amazon Marketplace platform. For example, Apple is is now the the only one that is allowed to sell iPhones, if I'm not mistaken, on the marketplace. Is that some kind of exclusivity? Some kind of exclusion of, of competition within the platform? I suppose that's sort of the the way they want to go with that. That's also a curious one. We'll have to see. This is also kind of like a vertical vertical concerns. How is Apple managing different business users' interests? Are there exclusivity agreements? Normally, unless you have market power in retail, for example, then, then uh, exclusivity wouldn't be a problem. Does Amazon compete with offline channels? 
arguably yes, perhaps during these times not. Exactly. It doesn't make a lot of sense to go deeply into it when we barely have any details. But there's more details on this very last tech company, Facebook. Uh, what about them? Are they in trouble? <laughs> I think all five of these guys are in trouble. Uh, I mean, in terms of under under the crosshairs. So there was obviously a couple of mergers that, that Facebook has under scrutiny of that had required merger control approval, approval from EU authorities or UK authorities. And there have been questions about did the commission or the CMA get the analysis right? A lot of concerns over that. In one, there was a fine imposed on Facebook for providing incorrect or misleading information. In the Facebook WhatsApp case, though the commission clarified that they did not rely when they issued that fine, they, they said that you know that does not affect the decision because the decision did not rely on that information, but the companies are under an obligation to provide no misleading information and can be fined for that, so they were. But that's not really unilateral conduct. That's kind of a procedural violation. The most interesting case, I think, which is now also a EU case in a way, not just a German case, because it's been referred by German court to the uh, European courts, is the German case against Facebook for data exploitation or breach of data protection or extracting uh, more data than it needs uh, using unfair terms and conditions in its agreements with consumers. So that has reached a decision and is going through the courts. That is based on German law and GDPR, so question the extent to which that's a, a theory of harm that will be followed elsewhere. The European Commission hasn't followed that theory yet, but there are investigations into Facebook's use of data in the ad tech chain, both in the EU and the UK CMA, obviously following the CMA's long market study into digital advertising platforms, they have indicated that they're going to be opening up a number of cases. And there's the digital markets task force that they have, a special unit to look at these cases. So that's a live one. There's also something else being looked at in Germany, which we Even mentioned. More? The, <laughs> so we, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the, the under these new 19A rules, Bundeskartellamt is looking at Facebook's tying practices with Oculus. So Oculus is a another company that they bought that is mm-hmm. a provider of virtual reality hardware uh, headsets. They require that users log in with Facebook to use an uh, Oculus device, and, and that's alleged to be anti-competitive tying. And I, I believe this one was originally opened before 19A, the German amendments were passed, but then it got moved mm-hmm. into, the, into this new tool, which is meant to facilitate enforcement and also skips a level of judicial review. So courts won't be able to, the court that referred to the previous Facebook case won't be able to do that because they're not going to get the case <laughs> at all. That's convenient. Uh, okay, wow, what a, what a list. Um, is there anything else? Yes, there is also um, reported this week, uh, the Financial Times has said that there is going to be an official opening of an investigation into Marketplace. Now, 
a Facebook marketplace. There were questionnaires sent out that were asking about it back in October of 2019. So it's already been a while. There's been at least three rounds of questions sent out, really focused on whether there's distortions in the classified ads business. Classified ads used to be like 50-60% of newspaper revenue. Once the, the internet appeared, a lot of classifieds went to platforms. So in the US, a very famous one is Craigslist. In the UK, there's uh, one called Gumtree. I think every country has a popular classified platform. Facebook also in this space has their marketplace service, which apparently is very popular. And you can go there and you know people are selling used you know, their furniture if they're moving or, or giving away free stuff that they're trying to get rid of. And the allegations there is that fa- uh, Facebook has favored its marketplace service in a way that's anti-competitive. That's, that's hmm. you know, I, I don't know what the issue there. If, if the idea is that marketplace is free and that's unfair to all the others who aren't subsidized by a social media platform that's very successful and has a lot of user engagement, you know, just because you're undercutting your rivals or subsidizing with, a, with another business unit of yours, I'm not sure that's, that's a real theory of harm. I mean, I suppose I suppose cross subsidization could be anti-competitive if it if it allows you to price predatorily in a different market and drive out competition. But I'm not seeing a very strong case based on that theory here. I mean, I've, I've used Marketplace; it's it's a pretty good service, like selling some old headphones and old keyboard. Like, yeah, it doesn't require you to pay any commission and. I suppose at least for Facebook, like the, the cost of it is also relatively low. So hey, I suppose a predatory pricing case is more difficult there. I can't really see it. Could also be a self-preferencing case, similar to Google search, uh, where they put a link to Marketplace. There's a tab in Facebook. Why is that tab going to Marketplace? Why is that tab not going to all the dozens of competitors? Why is there not a choice screen that lets you pick when you go to Marketplace to pick which Marketplace you want to be linked to in that tab? You know. How much is this yeah. uh, Facebook's real estate and how much is this essential facility that other competitors should have access to? True. Although I guess Facebook has a more like internal facing platform. So I can see the argument being weaker there. Like Google is made to link to other sites. Like Facebook does not have that as a primary purpose. So, But these days, of course, I mean, everything is self-referencing or at least can be. So maybe that's the, the approach they'll take. But I guess that's where we are these days. Lots of second-guessing of firms' product design decisions and how they could have been made to increase competition instead of generate a return. And what's really interesting is that a lot of the remedies that are being sought in these investigations, which would normally be subject to all kinds of evidentiary requirements, are in parallel also being introduced in the European Digital Markets Act, which the Commission proposed last December. Hold on a minute, Kay, because that's a whole other can of worms. And we've already been going for nearly an hour, I think. So maybe we should save that for the next episode. Sounds like a pan. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And if you want to get engaged, you can find us on Twitter at Monopoly Attack.